Welcome to the awards podcast for the second season of Reads on Film. This podcast was brought to you by Johnny. on Films Season 2 Awards, a special Christmas edition to wrap up our second successful season on the Substack, bringing you uh, reviews, hot takes, and edgy comments week in, week out. We're mixing the format up this season. Uh, we're going to do a bit more of a stripped back approach to the awards. Uh, I think we've only got four categories in total. But before we get to those, let's just uh, give people a little refresh, introduce ourselves, and maybe mention a a festive classic or something that you've been watching over the Christmas period that you're a particular fan of. Um, I'll start. I am Callum, Callum Reed. Haven't really watched too many films over Christmas yet, um, but I'm always um, partial to a bit of uh, Stanley Kubrick, whether that's the, the snowy uh, Overlook Hotel in The Shining or indeed the Christmas um, fake New York of uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, I'll pass over to Theo. Hi, I'm Theo. I haven't watched loads over the Christmas periods. I recently watched Napoleon. As much as I'm a fan of Joaquin Phoenix, uh, wasn't a big fan of Napoleon. Wouldn't really recommend it, to be honest. Uh, yeah, not great. I'll hand over to Nathan. Yeah, Nathan. Um, I, uh, I can't really think of a Christmas film that I'm like, crazy for jingle all the way was pretty good but what i've been watching i saw godzilla minus one in the cinema recently and i have to say it did slap those godzilla scenes were like no other big monster monster scene i've seen before just huge very like well designed good cgi on such a low budget and just like thoroughly entertaining drama and monster film that me sorry over, over to father Hello, I'm Stephen. And in terms of films that I've watched, well, every year I always get out my trusty DVD of uh, John Houston's last film, The Dead, considered an unfilmable short story by James Joyce, probably the greatest short story ever written. It's set at the end of the year in Dublin. Um, I won't give away any spoilers, but I would recommend that everybody who hasn't seen it sits down and gets a copy. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Um, oh, I'll also say I'm looking forward to seeing uh, The Boy and the Heron, hopefully, this week as well, which is just releasing in the UK cinemas. So that will be something that I'm watching over the festive uh, For period. Sure. For sure. Before we move on to the awards, one final thing, also in the spirit of the season. We, of course, all watched Jingle All The Way, um, as uh, voted by some of our trusty readers. Um, so, yeah, we'd just like to extend our thanks to all of those people who voted in the poll. And um, you can, of course, find that uh, review on our Substack. I think it's fair to say that we were all pleasantly surprised by the It's a fantastic poll. Yeah, there are a few eye rolls and a few sighs when we saw the results of the poll, but um, actually I think it turned out to be pretty pretty good. It, it, was, it was the biggest surprise throughout the entirety of the season in terms of what Ooh. I expected from the film and what I got. Interesting. And we should say commiserations to James Norton, who nominated the John Waters classic female trouble which lost out on a casting vote um wow. but you never know it might turn up again at some point so yeah i mean that's sort of the kind of housekeeping business out of the way i think we can move on with the main event so transition effect 
And um, we'll start with the awards themselves. Instead of all nominating an award this time and kind of explaining four films at once, I think we've kind of collectively all agreed on uh, four particular films that we'd like to give our awards to. And then we might discuss some honourable mentions as we go. So without further ado, what are we starting with, Steve? Uh, I think we're starting with best film. And the, well, I think the best film, which we all agreed on, sort of won this race by a, a country mile. It was David Lynch's Inland Empire. Who wants to kick off a discussion about this challenging yet complexing film? Why don't you go ahead, Dad? Had anyone not seen it before? Out of curiosity? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I hadn't seen it. Had. Yeah. Dad, you famously walked out yeah. after 20 minutes when it was in on general release. Yeah, you yeah. have some explaining so, to do. So <laughs> I, went, big I went to watch it on a, it was a, I remember it was a weekday afternoon and I was expecting great things, having been a David Lynch fan for a long time. I went to see the cinema. There were three other people in the cinema, sat down, and there was... All I remember now, from back then, was that there was a scene where people were speaking in Polish and there weren't subtitles on the screen. And then it cut to a shot of these rabbits, at which point I thought, I'm really not in the mood for this. Mm. And walked out. I mean, maybe we should start then with giving as best a kind of contextualization of some of the some of the film as we can, which mm. obviously is a is a challenge. Of course, we would direct the readers to our our review of the film, which I think was a, a few months ago now, maybe. Mm. Um, Quite a lengthy review as well. So, how would you? Do, I mean, David Lynch himself obviously describes it as a woman in trouble. That's like his log line for the film. Uh, which, as other people have pointed out, you, you could say about most of his films, that's the kind of that's the kind of idea. But we're the razor head. Yeah, we're follow well, we're following Laura Dern, and she is playing a character who I believe is called Nikki. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, she similar again, similar to Mulholland Holland Drive, which is which predates this film by what, five years or something. Is it two thousand and six yep, versus yep. two thousand and one? And she's going for a role in a film we later find out that the film she's going for is based on this ancient or not ancient but an old P- Polish folklore that's a kind of cursed story someone tried to film it in Germany previously and it went uh, went horribly wrong as people died um, and she, eventually she kind of gets the part um, and we kind of watch her kind of descend into this weird world where they're trying to shoot a film but also sort of her character's world and her world blend into one um, as, a, as a viewer you're kind of not sure whether you're watching her scenes or whether you're watching the kind of behind the scenes as it were and then there are a few other kind of characters and narratives that are woven in throughout That's a, that would be my high level discussion do you think there's any uh, summary rather are there any other like key parts um no, I think you've done a good job there. Yeah, I mean, there are moments that almost seem to take place outside of, like, sh- like even, like, strict reality in that. So it's like the rabbit scene. Mm-hmm. And, like, the scenes with the... I think Dad described it quite well as, like, a Greek chorus of... Were they, like, prostitutes or something? I guess they were, like... Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I feel like those those moments were almost, like... They felt like ripples of kind mm. of memories or, or, or some kind of representation of a higher conscious. Yeah. You were uh, moving not only through narratives of characters, but also through their kind of minds and fantasies in a certain sense. Yeah. So there were yeah. scenes that were obviously not just a, like 
when they're when the when they're when that particular chorus you mentioned are doing this the dance routine to mm. um lo- the locomotion yeah um in a kind of weird suburban house yeah it's yeah. actually good scene yeah yeah but i would tell me it is a, a challenging watch and you have to have, i think you do have to have patience to sort of sit through it particularly the first <laughs> half and then you start to find it yourself drawn into it and really engaging with the film well, so yeah, yeah. It's a hard watch, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's slow or. No, it's I mean it's hard three, to. It's it's a three-hour-long film, but it seems to run along pretty quickly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think for a film, yeah, for a three-hour film, I, I think I said this to you that I didn't check my phone. Like usually, like it's quite easy, you know, in today's age to quickly check your phone and or something in, in the middle of a film, even if it's just a glance to see if you've got any notifications. Inland Empire. I didn't look at my phone once except for in the Terry Crews scene when I checked to see if, because I saw him and I was like, is that Terry Crews? And I was like, yeah, it is. That was it. Other than that, I was just like hooked mm. for three hours and then it finished and I was like, God, blown away. What an experience. Yeah. I have to say, I, th- I said this at the time, I think, but this would probably be the last David Lynch film that I would ever recommend to somebody had they, particularly if they'd never seen a David Lynch film before. I feel like if I was coming at this fresh again, going back to your um, cinema experience of walking out, if if I if in, if I got taken to the cinema, I was like, I'll oh, come watch this new film. Uh, it's by mm. the director John Smith, blah 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 blah. And I went in the cinema, and Inland Empire started playing. I think mm. without that David Lynch credential and the kind of uh, if you like cinematic vocabulary that he's <laughs> constructed that I'm familiar with from Twin Peaks, from Mulholland Drive, from all of his other films. I, I would definitely feel alienated and definitely feel like this is nuts. This person should be locked up. <laughs> I'm leaving. Yeah. yeah. You've got, like, got to build up to that. You've yeah. got to like, build that foundation to like really... I In think... a sense, it's like a, like a culmination of all his previous um, work, really. And there's a lot of... Definitely. There's a lot of um, like references to previous work mm. and a lot of theme, similar themes such as like the dream world from Twin Peaks or mm. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Um, and you've got also in the final scene, the credit scene, where you have actors from previous films that he's done that appear in it. Um, it's very much feels like this big culmination of mm. all the work he's done before. Naomi yeah. Watts has a cameo as one of mm. the rabbits that you know, obviously, you never see her face because she's got a, a rabbit costume on. Yeah, but, I only found that today. And I think you, we did mention this again in our review, didn't we, about how David Inch, like a lot of sort of big successful artists we find tend to they have one topic or one theme and they kind of re reiterate it through all of their films and they're kind of in some way rewriting the same novel or re remaking the same film each time um and this feels like a very much kind of culmination of course i mean is this his his last well that's it i mean today he made he made this film in 2006 and at the time, I don't think anyone thought this was going to be his last feature film, but he hasn't made a film, a feature film since yeah. then. Um, obviously, he's made um, Twin Peaks to Return, which is, I mean, well, it's avant-garde cinema on television, which is pretty, you know, I, I think when it comes to Twin Peaks, I mean, it's an exceptional sort of experience to watch. But Inland Empire, if you can sit with it sit through it and engage with it i think you'll have a similar experience mm. really yeah, um all those themes that sort of bleed through it, and there's yeah. david Lynch. said i mean one of the challenges with a film like this is that you're struggling to try and make sense of it trying to interpret it trying to understand what he means but as he often says you know 
the film stands alone. I was going to say, like, back to that, we were talking about kind of referencing his previous work. I think you could go even further that within Lynch's own works, they do reference themselves a lot. And yeah, like, absolutely. Th- that, there's that scene, I think, where they go, where she kind of, they're, they're rehearsing the script for one of the first times. It's her, is it Jeremy Irons' character? Um, Justin um, Through. Justin Through. Um, and they, and then they kind of look behind the stage and then we see that again, but from a different perspective later in the film. And there are a number of scenes like that in Warhol and Drive as well, where you kind of get the same scene, but through a slightly different warped perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something about that and that like playing tricks on the viewer. There's something quite unsettling. It goes back to that idea of the gaze and like you feel like you're being tricked by the camera and seeing things again from different angles or seeing things not as you remember them or how they seem or how they should be. It's kind of like that almost that liminal anxiety mm-hmm. that that's that I think he's able to create with with this film more than more than maybe any of his other mm. uh, motion pictures at least. Although I, I'd agree that um, Twin Peaks will Return definitely reaches those those yeah. heights. <clears throat> I mean, we don't want to do like an in depth breakdown. I I, I mean, uh, obviously we have the separate technical aesthetic award that we'll come to. I think we should definitely talk about maybe the the use of his choice of uh, film format. One that he yeah. didn't actually use film for the first time. He used digital, like a DV camera. Um, and it has this very low-budget, home-movie aesthetic. Um, that, I mean, I don't know why he why he chose to use that. But I think when he did use digital, he said that's the last... So Inland Empire marks the first time I'm using digital. And is also I will also no longer be using film. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just think... Lynch often gets, his cinematography skills often get underplayed. And I think he's often behind the camera. And I think Inland Empire, he shot thing as well. He was yeah, pretty very much, much so. In the same way that he, he manages and um, organises all the sound design as well. Yeah. I mean, one yeah. thing that does, yeah, just my, my final point that sort of intrigues me about his films is that they're often seen as quite dark and, as I said before, challenging. But there's something also very playful about him. That, yeah, as you say, with the um, filming it with the DV camera, um, just trying out these new tricks which he hasn't used before. Um, I always go back to Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, but I think there's something similar about him just sort of trying these new things, even as he gets quite, you know, he's getting on a bit now, mm. David Lynch, but being quite experimental. In I, the way I, he... I guess the way I'd differentiate Inland Empire from some of his previous work would be it's it feels actually more um, am- amateurish in the look, in the kind of aesthetically, the look he's going for. Marvel and Drive actually looks, you know, it looks like it's been shot. Very polished. Very polished, like a, something else you'd see in the cinema, but with all the kind of crazy bells and, and, bells and whistles of a Lynch film. Um, whereas Inland Empire, it's, you know, he gets the camera and he kind of puts it into the actor's face. Like you can see he's got that like, right close up underneath people's chins. Um, kind of uh, reminds me a lot of Herzog, actually, in, in a lot of ways, in the way he shoots Very some of his documentaries. Yeah, kind of this floating camera just like exploring people and, you know, it's very unnatural. It doesn't feel, it's very unsettling. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely mm. agree. It's definitely a testament to the film that I think we talked about it for all, like the soundtrack, um, the acting, so Laura Dern, uh, solid performance. The soundtrack was really good and the cinematography as well was top notch. Yeah. I also think what just very briefly on the on the topic of the soundtrack, there's the burial sample which is is taken from 
in his in Daryl's album Untrue is taken from a a short um, audio clip, which actually we might be able to might be able to play in. Uh... I show you lightning. And I think that's quite a good reference point for the kind of sound and aesthetic. I think if I was going to imagine anyone else doing a soundtrack for this film, it would be Burial. It's that kind of like in-between sound, that kind of industrial, haunting, ghostly. neither here nor there, ghostly, mm. um, but also kind of slightly dreamy and ethereal. Like spiritual. Um, yeah. I think that's a, a kind of interesting lens through which you could you could look at this film. Yeah. Obviously, in one of the most iconic moments of the film as well, a really emotional moment in the yeah. st- the homeless lady in the street mm. with Terry Crews. With Terry Crews. With Terry yeah. Crews. Are we done now? Yeah. Should we move? Should we? T- do we want to mention any other films that would be in the would be in the conversation for this, or do you think um, we should just steamroll on? But I think, as I said, we all agreed that. Um, Inland Empire won this award by a fair margin. But if it wasn't in the conversation, if we hadn't seen Inland Empire this season or the other films, I mean, I, I would say, you know, in terms of good and great films, we've seen a fair few um, this time around. I mean, Chunking Express, I have to say, was one of my particular highlights. I've sort of seen it years ago. Um, but to have that refresh um, this year was really, really good, actually, a really rewarding watch. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, I know, I know we, we discussed this at the time whether or not it can be considered a rom com. But for me, when I looked at it, and I was like, oh, a romance about like t- you know interweaving narratives and chance occurrences. Like I would I would say that the, the kind of themes and ideas that it's ta- that that film is addressing is within that kind of nineties rom com era, and which is a genre I very much would not be interested in engaging with usually on any level. And I think this is an example of how you can address those themes in quite an interesting and novel way rather than just filming, you know, oh, it's a wedding and then, like, someone's sad and then they <laughs> cheat on their husband and blah, blah, blah. It's, like, a really interesting way of engaging with those topics that was a bit, yeah. bit, off, bit off kilter. And, and, bit and also, I think, quite, like, relevant to today's world in a way that mm. the way the kind of exploration of spontane- spontaneity and um, that kind of, like, in-the-moment... Uh, interactions between people uh, is more and more superseded by you know social media and you got like dating apps and stuff you don't people don't like that's not people don't often meet through those mm. kind of like chance encounters in a fish and chip shop or whatever that they're kind of yeah. a lot of that film takes place um i think it's yeah, yeah that was a really good film mm. another one for me was definitely joyland which i think actually was the the, the opening film the first pick I don't, I'm not even sure who actually picked it yeah it was, um, it was the opening but it was very I, again I looked at it and I saw oh it's a kind of um, I think it's a Pakistani film right mm, yeah mm-hmm. um, and it caused a bit of a stir there but I remember looking at it and thinking oh okay family drama kind of coming of agey type thing well not really coming of age but this isn't the sort of film I usually like and I just remember being really you know floored by how impressive how kind of emotive and engaging the characters were um you really kind of felt immersed in that little world of their quite small house that they all lived in um the i think the i can't remember her name but his wife um i think did was was a really standout performance the kind of main character's wife um in terms of how she kind of felt that she had to support the family but was also kind of oppressed and 
um, held back by the kind of the social structures in which she found herself in. It was a very finely tuned web of character interactions mm. kind of within the house and outside of it. Yeah. Um, and the kind of conflict that you had in those kind of, that kind of multifaceted like love triangle was, it wasn't something that I'd ever seen, at least seen in film before. Yeah. Um, and also the exploration of those, those themes of, of like sexuality and things and discrimination. I, I think I was saying like often mm. it wasn't that kind of black and white picture of, oh, okay, but here's the discriminated against they're the protagonists of the film, they're, you know, but then we have the villains, those who are discriminating. It was often those who are the victims that become the, uh, you know, the ones who are prejudiced. They kind of further their own prejudice against themselves and other people. Mm, yeah, um, I think I'd agree. I think there's definitely, a, there's a very kind of established lens of, particularly I think with LGBTQ cinema and like how those films particularly Western iterations of that should be presented or should be filmed. And there are like some famous examples. And I think this film just totally took, took through through all that out and kind of created a new and interesting way of, I guess, representing those experiences and those narratives. Yeah. I mean, it certainly wasn't an in quotes issues movie. It didn't feel like that. And I think one of the things that helped with that is the fact it was just so beautiful to watch. I mean, the the screen was saturated with colour. And, um, yeah, had this sense almost of magical realism, I think. Uh, should just point out that when it was released, it was banned in Pakistan. Um, but then because of, I think, popular and international support, um, they were eventually able to release it. It was really... Some of the shots, especially when they were, like, in the alleyways, um, the lighting was particularly um, impressive and almost, like, photographs each shot each um, frame nice um, any other any other honourable mentions that people want to want to address before we move on to our next category I thought the whaling was quite um, mm. good point good uh, yeah I thought it was a really good film overall um, another Korean banger yeah. yeah it was pretty scary for a horror film which is always good I feel like a lot of horror films made these days are aren't that scary Mm. um it was the music was really good it was the climactic scene with the it was like really energetic and lively uh where you had the i guess the spirit and the the guy trying to cure it was like a ritual scene where they were it was two shame it was two shamans battling each other (laughs) kind of like a psychic battle from two different crazy. locations. That was absolutely crazy. And you had yeah. the contrast of like the really energetic, lively shaman. Animals um, with like sacrificing Really loud. Animals. Yeah, it, sacrificing like, animals, like smacking a drum. But big drum. And smashing up like totems yeah. and waving blades around. Yeah. Uh, and then it would cut between that and the, the guy who was just like sat in a dark room with like a candle um, with his eyes closed, mm. just uh, like saying like a chant. I think I think yeah. I uh, I did a comparison with uh, Gandalf and Saruman like battling it out mm. um, when Saruman is in Isengard yeah. and I can't remember which mountain the Fellowship are crossing and it's like I don't know she's these two great powers like just clashing but or, like from two completely different locations yeah I think the other thing that was really good at something that the film did well was it played with that ambiguity of we kind of knew that there were some shady characters and there was, I think for, for a lot, I mean, probably the main criticism people often levy at 
horror films, modern horror films, is, oh, it's predictable. Oh, I knew it was going to happen. And I think this film did a really good job of kind of embracing a degree of predictability, mm. but also still leaving you with kind of unanswered questions and layers. And it kind of went back and forward in a, a bit where I, I didn't feel like I'd figured it out halfway through. Um, even though there were some things that became quite obvious early on. Yeah. I didn't even feel like I'd figured it out at the end or yeah. a week afterwards after. Which know. is strange because so from the very start of the film, you had the gu- really a lot of clues that the guy, the old man was some kind of devil or demon. Like you had him at the... Spoilers! St- or was he? Yeah. Or was or he? Or was he? Um, but yeah. Spoiler warning. And which spoiler warning. Wait, you can sample that and put that. Yeah. Spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. Thank you. Also, um, again, it was one of these films that has a really long running time. It was over two and a half hours, but it was such an intense watching experience that the time just flew by. Which should highlight, though, for me, that performance by the daughter who was possessed. Uh, and I think I said in the review there was a comparison between her and Linda Blair as Regan in The Exorcist. And, I mean, in terms of out-demonising... Um, a competitor. I mean, she made Linda Blair look like a Teletubby in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, so horrific. She didn't need to spin her head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of what contributed as well to the predictability was that unreliable narrator. Like, you had a lot of times where you'd have sequences and then it would cut to um, just someone like sleeping and it'd be, try- it'd be quite clear that it was just a dream. Or that I think there was one part where um, there was like a sequence with the old man with like red eyes um, and he was like eating a human and then it would cut to a guy telling the story of that scene. Mm. Um, So you wouldn't really know what was really happening in the film and what was or what was happening in the film world and what was like a story or a myth or a dream. I think it also gets the award for most infuriating protagonist because that police officer was just absolutely mm. useless. Which we later found out was a, is a specific trope of Korean Cor- cinema, right? The incompetent, yeah. the incompetent police officer. It seems pretty common that all the police, they always have a sort of goofy slapstick mm. or quite commonly. It's either that or just extremely violent and, uh, um, you know, yeah. yeah. But definitely a film I would say to our listeners, check it out if you haven't, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit long. I think it's like two out, 2.45 or two and a half hours, but it was a really good, exciting, thrilling watch, flew by and yeah, worthy of the, worthy of the conversation of best film. If we hadn't had such a high caliber of, mm. uh, of picks this season, you know, who knows, it could have won. Free on Amazon Prime as well. Free on Amazon Prime. Mm. Well, can I say that? Oh. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, well. yeah Amazon, Jeff, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> please uh, hit us up um, <laughs> sponsor cool well should we move on Wait, well, I can yeah. whenever you come in here and interrupt me you're breaking my concentration you're distracting me so um, transition um, after our break we're now going to talk about uh, the next category of uh, Rings on Film Season 2's awards which is best actor now um who would like to announce the winner of this category? I mean, we saw some great performances over the over the season. I think um, there'll be plenty of honorable mentions, I'm sure. But sure, um, best actor that we landed on was um, 
Bob Hoskins from The Long Good Friday. Yes. And what a film it was. I mean, I, I it, it feels harsh to say he carried the, the film because he definitely didn't. But I think the question I always ask for this category is, could anyone replace this person in the film? And I think, although I'd never seen him in any films before, I, don't, I can't imagine anyone else doing that role and doing it well. Yeah, I mean, he was the centre point of the film. He was the the film. In, in, in a sense, he did carry it. It was his performance, that kind of... I think it's finding that in-between of a character who's capable of violence and terrible things, but he's also got a tenderness and a friendliness with his kind of close inner family and friends. Um, there's a, there's a nice, you know, there's a nice, um, he plays both sides in a way, um, emotionally. I always found with his performance that he always felt like he was on the edge of exploding, but he never quite reached that, line uh he never quite exploded in the film but he was always teetering on that line and i thought that played a great contrast with uh helen mirren's character who was very um calm and seemed to have everything under control yeah i would agree i mean it was one of his breakout performances i think he'd been on um television and done some work on the stage but then The Long Good Friday, I mean, it was an electrifying performance. And the story itself is one of a sort of tragic arc. And his performance is Shakespearean. I think in the review, we talked about this mix of Macbeth and Coriolanus. Um, and he rapidly descends after reaching astonishing heights into this you know, terrible situation at the end of the film. And I think it was Theo who talked about that final shot, which mm. seems to go on for minutes, but the camera is just focused on Hoskins' face and you just see him passing through this range of emotions. Interestingly, I think Callum, you said you hadn't seen him in any other films. I mean, I've seen him before in similar roles, like a film by the name of Mona Lisa, but also he played alongside cartoon characters in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And he also played another character from a video game. Um, I think he played Mario in... Uh, <laughs> oh, in the Mario, in the Mario yeah, film. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, that's so, how I need to see. That's a good film. So, and actually quite some range. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Seth Rogen Mario. Oh, no, sorry, Chris Pratt. Um, I, yeah, I think it's, of course, you can't mention his performance without mentioning some of the great one-liners and the humour that's in that film. Of course, the most quotable one for me is the line when he f finds out from one of his henchmen or the guy working in the, um, where, where this murder takes place, he gets told, oh, don't worry, the body's been taken out in secret. It's been, we, we sort of smuggled the body into an ice cream van and it's been taken away to, to be buried. And then he, Harold. Kept it all incognito, they're going to collect the body in an ice cream van. Well, there's a lot of dignity in that, isn't there? Going out like a raspberry ripple. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, it's in this moment, because before that he's kind of reflecting on, I think it was one of his friends from when he grew up, or like someone he's yeah. known for years and I've trusted him, and he's been murdered in, in cold blood. And then he just so suddenly breaks that tension with a fantastic one-liner. Yeah, um, uh, yeah a, a standout performance for me. I think the script in the film was very good. 
especially his what his lines um when he was talking to the american um like gangsters uh and he said what did he say he get when he's getting worked up and he says something like he calls one of them a long streak of paralyzed piss yeah uh, that was one of the great lines for me he kind of represents in a way this kind of vision of like a utopian britain and a future of a european britain and particularly in the context of those americans where he's sort yeah. of saying you know we've got britain has all this culture and all you've got is frankfurters and hot dogs yeah, yeah hot dogs <laughs> a little and... bit more than the hot dog know what i mean yeah exactly <laughs> and like yeah there's something definitely there's there's something sort of there's definitely political overtones in the ball so these kind of undertones of things which echo into sort of post-Brexit Britain and a time where we've become more insular and, and inward-looking and defensive um, as opposed to this kind of vision of um, Britain, Britain being at the centre yeah. of Europe. Exactly. And I think we also make comparisons to like a, almost like a Mick Lynch type figure in that respect. That's the kind of vibe that Bob Hoskins gives off in this film. Um, but yeah, I just think there's so, there's so much depth and so many layers to, to this film yeah. um, that I didn't expect having just seen the trailer. He's a very likeable character for sure. Yeah. But also, as an actor, I mean, it's an amazingly convincing performance. I mean, he makes a couple of bravura speeches where he's talking about his visions for the Docklands, and they show how, at that time, this was 1980, it was still a wasteland. It wasn't the Docklands that we know it in the centre of London today. And he is, in a way, predicting the rise of Canary Wharf and all that followed. Nice. Mm -hmm. Anything else on Bob Hoskins? Or should we, do we have any honourable mentions we'd like to raise up on this particular topic? Silence. Well, moving on from Bob Hoskins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got to give a shout out to Laura Dern in Inland Empire. That was a fantastic performance. Absolutely. Um, riddled with emotion perfectly i feel like she really perfectly executed the role of uh nikki in that film yeah i mean to go back to my earlier metric and again perhaps controversially could could anyone else have replaced laura dern in this film dare i say even perhaps Naomi Naomi watts or one of lynch's other kind of leading ladies is it possible, maybe? I, I definitely think I agree with you that her performance was really good. And of course, again, Lynch notoriously campaigned her to get an Oscar by taking a cow onto oh, yeah. Hollywood Boulevard and a big sign saying, for your consideration, Laura Dern or something like that. I think that's quite <laughs> well, he took funny. it himself. Yeah, yeah, he sat on... The, he sat on, the, And this was like, I think very... Again, 2006, so early pre-internet days. So you could do things like that and it wouldn't just suddenly be a thousand people turning up to... <laughs> um, yeah, to, to meet David Lynch. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree that she she should be in the conversation. Um, obviously, we've talked a bit about Inland Empire already. So, is there anything else anyone wants to add on Laura Dern or? Well, I mean, I, I think you know, Late Spring was one of my favourites from the season. I think it met with fairly mixed reviews from mm. from the, from the group. But you know, there were two um, outstanding performances from the performances from the lead actors in that film who were faced with Ozu's static camera. I mean, their names, I should mention them, Setsuko Hara and Chishu Ryu. They were the two leads, the father and the daughter. And they, their performances were 
performances of stillness, but they were able to express so much motivation just by a sort of twitch in the face, a look to the camera, in a film where there wasn't that much dialogue. So they had to convey so much of what was happening in the film, what they were thinking and feeling just through their body language. And I was, yeah, I was really impressed by that. I guess on the topic of um, uh, very, of conveying emotion through body language, it would also be worth considering, um, again, his name, uh, Takeshi, um, Takeshi Hanabi. Katana. Takeshi Katana. Uh, Hanabi. Hanabi. Katana. Yeah. Who, no. Katano, who was also directing the film. Yeah, and editing, and does the um, all of the art. Well, uh, an auteur. Um, yeah, I, again, like I think, especially the sort of first half of that film, he barely says a word. There's scenes where he, he I don't even think he speaks. Um, I think one in particular that where he's talking to one of uh, the gang, uh, one of the, sorry, one of his fellow cops, uh, um, Widow, and the whole scene is her talking to him, but he has so much presence in the scene. And the fact he does that without any words, I think it's very, very much, um, very impressive uh, performance from him. Well, speaking of performances with little to no words, uh, a hidden gem, I would argue, from this season, which um, hasn't come up so far, is um, Divine Intervention, um, which I actually thought, I know, again, initially it was controversial um, in terms of how well, just in general, how much people enjoyed the film. But I thought that performance, um, which again, I think was a, what, Palestinian filmmaker? I can't remember his first name, but his surname's Suleiman, Su- isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, his his performance, I thought, in Divine Intervention was really good. I th- I'm not sure what it is about that kind of like, um, quite sort of s- um, static, non-verbal, often like, I think it was people just, people Buster who did enjoy the film, yeah, re- sort of referred to him as like a Buster Keaton, almost stone-faced, type performance I don't know what it is that's appealing or interesting about that is it the fact that you're it kind of gives you space as a as a viewer to kind of project your emotions onto the character or is it why is it that we find performances interesting mm. where they aren't just like doing all kind of crazy things with their faces because obviously those kind of performances have their place but maybe it's that it's exactly that it allows you to place yourself within that character similar to in a lot of video games they have that don't they the kind of uh, very um Un, uh, underspoken mm. underspoken understated understated the the, the the sort of protagonist who is of, of, of very little words you're kind yeah, of Red Dead Redemption uh, yeah Master Chief or um, uh, Pokemon your character in that never speaks yeah <laughs> that's interesting or any of those JRP I mean we don't want to turn anything here but yeah, yeah they always have like these non-speaking main characters John so Marsden is, is it also not even that's because before I said it has to be a projection, but I suppose also it's just giving you that like ambiguity so that your mind is ticking over like what is this person thinking? What mm. would I be thinking if I was in their situation? And it's that kind of degree of ambiguity that kind of opens the the performance up uh, to a range of emotions and interpretations. Yeah, yeah. So it makes you. I think it makes you as a viewer really have to work in trying to read what the character is is thinking or trying to convey. I mean, all of his films with the exception of the last one. Um, he's remained mute in them. Um, there are obviously films which are political, um, set you know, uh, in both Palestine, in, in the occupied territories and in Israel. 
and I think it was in his last film called It Must Be Heaven that he utters his first words, first spoken words in the film. He says, I am a Palestinian. And that's Elias Suleiman, I should yeah. say, a little um, addition to what I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I really enjoyed that film. I thought it was a good good performance. Bit of a weird one, curveball, but... Um, yeah, I thought it was a good. Small mention. Any other standout performances, or are we happy to move on to um, award number three? Here we go. Happy to move, move on. on. Our next award is for Best Cinematography. Now, we, we did have a little bit of a, a back and forth on sort of what we wanted this award to encapsulate, what we wanted it to mean. Cinematography can sound a bit sort of airy fairy a little bit nondescript non-committal i think there's a degree to which we we want it to be quite open so that we can talk about and integrate a few different things into this award for the sake of brevity um but i don't know maybe if i hand over to you nathan as our resident um yeah I... member in film to, to, to talk about what what cinematography means in the context of this award yeah i think in the context of this award we kind of we want it to really talk about the, the aesthetics and of the look of the film, including the editing, the cinematography, i.e. the lighting and the framing, and then also the mise-en-scene, what's in the frame, the set dress, maybe even the kind of look, the costumes and things that, that people are wearing. Um, I think, are we all agreed on that? I, I think that's kind of, that's kind yeah, of the, I think that's what we're the going best. for. Um, yeah. So who would like to uh, present this award? So, the award for Best Cinematography goes to Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist. I was really impressed. I hadn't seen The Conformist before, but it fitted for me with much of the grand Italian cinema that I've seen before from other directors, um, who none of whom are springing to mind at the moment. But like Visconti, Sorrentino, Fellini. where you get the and of yeah Federico Fellini, where you get this sort of really lush um, cinema screen or frame, sort of dripping with opulence, um, rich colours, really sensuous, sensual, um, and we saw that very much so with um, the Conformist. But what was interesting is that they were marrying that aesthetic with a very political film, you know, a man who is rising to become a figure in Mussolini's fascist state. And the way they use the both the framing, and I guess we'll talk a bit more about this, but switching from at times what was a very noirish sort of expressionism to, again, this sort of really sensual, almost taking us back to Caravaggio, where you have this contrast between light and dark and using that to um, signal what was happening in the film was, yeah, I think it was really very impressive. I think what was interesting about this film in particular, I mean, going back to, you mentioned a couple of different directors there, Italian directors, I think... For me, what I liked about this film was there was a bit of tension in terms of the opulence versus the. Obviously, it's a film that's about the fa fascism and the mindset of um, people who exist within a, a fascist structure. I thought it was interesting that there was a degree of tension between those two states. So it wasn't, 
sometimes, for example, to take a couple of examples from Fellini, so that I think there's a film called Americord, and then of course um, the Dolce Vita. There are times when they they're almost a, they almost I and mean, that obviously that's his style. Fellini's style is kind of everything over the top and like almost everything in the kitchen sink in terms of the fantasy, the fanfare, the kind of Italian opulence. Um, it can be a bit un-nuanced un in that sense whereas I think in this film it was really interesting how you kind of had one from the other you had these scenes that were almost and again I think there were comparisons drawn to The Godfather which you don't think of as being this super opulent film it's kind of, kind of moments where you're in, in street corners or that final scene in the forest in The Conformist where it's very kind of like austere and a bit almost bleak but then you do also have these kind of grand moments um, of opulence as well and I think that tension for me is what kind of carried the, a lot of the film and made the cinematography so impactful Yeah, I think uh, uh, the sort of aesthetics of the sets as well, they were just, they were so well put together. You had these kind of very dynamic frames, uh, so full, you know, when, when you're watching, when you're just watching the picture and there's there's so much going on, um, I, ju I, I just think it was like so well crafted and so well put together. Um, and again, I think the lighting helped with that. You had these scenes with sort of high contrast, shadow and light. In one scene in particular, they actually play with that and kind of link that to one of the central themes of the film uh, when they're discussing Plato. I think it's his... Plato's Cave. Plato's Cave. Um, and that's just, you know, when, when the cinematography and the themes unite, I think that's, you know, really a sign of excellence. Um, yeah. Good, good yeah, film. Good. It, had, it did use cinematography a lot to frame the fascist um the fascist like politics in quite a negative light i thought so for example in the like fascist headquarters mm. um you had it was quite bleak um often monochromatic colors it's very like stark white colors very bleak uh, a lot of the buildings so in the headquarters the building the windows were often opaque or blurred out uh, which made it feel almost like a prison. You had that, sh talking about prisons, you had that shot along the corridor where it was like the vertical, long vertical windows that created like a pr uh, shadow of like a cage um, as if he was like walking into a prison, which I thought all added. To Fascist cinematography. Stylized, not opulent, but soulless at its heart. Yeah, and who who directed Conformist? Do we have that? Bernardo Bertolucci. Bernardo, yeah. Bernardo Bertolucci. <laughs> uh, congratulations. Yeah, but also well, just to uh, add, oh. it was a film that was also very much informed by this sense of surrealism and dream logic. I think Bertolucci was renowned for being a Freudian and having sort of encountered years of therapy, and you can see, I think sort of allusions to his work in some of um, Lynch's work, you know, like Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. Uh, some of the scenes are quite reminiscent of The Conformist. And the check, way check the substack for that, because there's some very great comparisons of the two. The two way images. the film is um, constructed, it's almost, it's been pointed out that it kind of follows a structure of uh, a therapy sessions where it almost, the way that it jumps forward and back and forward in time it's almost like he's rec rec recalling life in therapy sessions 
Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, another award sewn up. Well, actually, before, of course, before we move on, we should quickly do some honourable mentions. I thought this was probably the hardest one for me to uh, award mm. or to come to an agreement on this one. I thought there are a lot of good cinemat, a lot of well shot films uh, with great cinematography. Mm. Very true. Uh, one of those, I'd say, Women in the Dunes. Uh, really good cinematography. Um, and I thought that it really made the film, for example, how it was all about how the sand kind of was anthropomorphized even to create like a it almost became its own character mm. through the way that it was shot um and how it was almost acting as a character to keep the protagonist from escaping the pit yeah uh, that he was it was the antagonist almost the yeah yeah anakin skywalker's nightmare yeah um well, I will I that clip. Say, but... <laughs> It's coarse and rough and Yeah, no, I think and Woman in June, it's just the, like, uh, it's, uh, I, we were talking about, you know, the awarding about the sort of combination of all the sort of the, the cinematography, the light and the set dressing. I think the, that Woman in June film had a very distinct aesthetic that's mm. kind of stuck with me. And when I think back to watching it, I can really place myself within that world. Yeah. Um, and it was it was quite a long film, I think, like two hours and a half. I want to say it was pushing. It was definitely yeah, it was definitely pushing that kind of longer yeah. uh, feature length. Um, but despite that, it was all set in one location, and I think mm. you know you, because of that kind of length of time you spent within the film, you really did feel kind of drawn in into that uh, whirlwind of sand and dust and grit. Uh, and, and trapped. Um, yeah, we had a lot of very extreme close-ups as well, like the skin, mm. the sand, or like covering their skin. Yeah, which made it really feel quite gritty. And, and, yeah, and I remember thinking that at the time. There's like there's something so visceral about the the sensation of sand on your skin or sand in your socks after you've been to the beach. Sand in your mouth. Seeing it, <laughs> yeah, seeing it on the screen, it did make me sort of it made my skin crawl a little bit. And it's so it's such a creative way of doing a kind of horrory, thrillery components of a film which obviously totally isn't that in, in, in a sense but that was that the kind of lurking threat was always there punctuated very well by the sound effects there, there was a very um particular sounds they used for the sound and those shots with the sand on the skin where you had this i don't know if it was part it was one of those ones where it kind of bled into into the into the uh, soundtrack itself um these these very particular pinpoints it just, you could just feel the sound. Um, yeah, good film, that. One of the things that really impressed me this season, though, was the um, films that we saw that were debut feature films by a number of directors and how impressive they were with their use of cinematography, but also editing. I mean, we've already mentioned Joyland, which was, as I think I've said, a beautiful film to watch but also Neptune Frost, a very different film, but a striking, you know, love or hate the film, but a very striking visual tone. And then a film which I don't think we as a group rated that highly, but it was a very impressive film to look at. Um, the film, was it Hagazusa? Hagazusa. Yeah, and again, that was a debut film as well. Some was... striking images again. Some of those shots, I don't... I don't even know how you begin to 
like craft a frame like that but they reminded me a little bit of Barry Lyndon you know there's just some moments in that film where it's like you look at it and you're like that could be a painting like it, it's something to do with the way it's lit and the way it's framed often quite wide and I guess it's the the still the still nature of the the movement on screen you know there's not much happening in terms of the the movement of the characters um yeah yeah I guess in a similar vein, um, the Ozu film, uh, that had a great framing. Uh, again, every every frame kind of like a could almost be a painting. Um, you had some really iconic shots in that mm. that definitely deserves a mention. Jinro, Jinro, yeah, mm. another classic. Perhaps, uh, our only animated film. Only animated film, so perhaps worth yeah mention him uh just uh very flashy contrasted scenes a very a very dark film overall i'd say the color palette was quite distinct uh sort of dark blues and kind of gritty earthy browns um yeah and again uh, uh it's, it's an alternate history film and also kind of explores that kind of fascist aesthetic um, with those stormtrooper like characters marching through the sewers, yeah. gunning people down, and uh, again, quite surreal and dreamlike. Um, some similarities with other films we've talked about today. Yeah. I mean, what really pressed me about the way that film, you know, in terms of cinematography, how it was shot, there was a sort of, as you said, contrast between or different sort of styles and techniques. Sometimes it looked like quite like dated old TD, 2D um, images quite flat on the screen and then you'd have others where you, they were packed with figures and incident and detail fleshing out in a real 3D sense. A very understated film, I think. Especially considering like anime seems to be so popular at the moment. And you know you have Miyazaki and Satoshi, Satoshi Kon with all their big films that everyone's always raving about. Uh, I, I'd never heard of uh, heard of uh, Jinro, um, and I think when I looked into it online, there was very little information about it. Is it not um, part of a trilogy or something? There's a really budget live action ne- Netflix. Netflix. Matter, the whole thing is like a big franchise, right? And a lot of it's yeah. awful, but then there's this like, yeah. one hidden gem among yeah. among the Jinro world. But yeah, I think it was one of the. I'm not, uh, maybe we should fact check fact check this, but. Um, I think one of the animators or one of the, the like writer or director was involved with Metropolis as well. Yeah. Did we mention Chunking? Oh, I was just going to mention the um, that had very notable camera work. It's mostly, I think, a handheld camera. It's pretty. It's like quite shaky, which added a lot to the kind of. Especially towards the start, it felt very chaotic. Um, they also did this technique where they, the kind of time lapse technique, where I think they shot the main characters moving slowly and really low FPS, um, which created a time lapse effect, which I thought was really effective and really creative. There's some standout shots. Some flares of technical brilliance um quite a nice comparison actually to our winner um conformist in a way 
in that that's got quite a sort of flat, uh, rigid aesthetic. Whereas um, Chongqing Express was a lot more lively and fluid and bouncy, you know, it kind mm. of bounced on the beat and the editing was fun and playful. Um, so yeah, I think it's yeah. quite a nice comparison and sort of shows what really of, is achievable. A lot of quirky moments, like yeah. when, what was it, when they're loading the drugs into the back of the van and the camera's just upside down. Yeah, a lot of like weird moments. Yeah, that yeah that was that was really yeah. cool. Well, I think there were comparisons to uh, what's it called, uh, French New Wave in that mm. sense, the kind of playful like, ooh, I'm French, I just run around, and, like, <laughs> watch my camera around. <laughs> but in a re- in a really good way. I mean, obviously yeah, that's yeah. that was such a revolutionary and exciting thing for people to watch. So I think it really carried on that tradition in a sense. Mm. What about um, divine intervention? We didn't mention that for cinematography. I thought that had some really good. Mm. Um, cinematography yeah in a way doing that kind of a lot of the sh- a lot because it was shot it obviously it's a film of predominantly vignettes and a lot of those the, the reference points for those vignettes were sort of repeating very still frames where you you'd seen this before and you knew what was happening and you're watching kind of neighborhood narrative or a story between um you know two neighbors in ramallah kind of having some kind of dispute and you kind of watch that narrative unfold through a particular lens or through a particular angle um, yeah, definitely. Uh, would uh, yeah. a lot of nice like fixed camera setups exploring space. Those verticality, yeah, sure. verticality where you had the, the two old men sat on the roof and then the kid playing with a ball in the alleyway. Yeah, yeah that's the shot I was gonna say. That yeah. you have and about like the interweaving of the neighborhood connect, like the neighbor, the neighbors. You had the boy doing kick ups, mm. and you'd cut to the two guys just sat on the yeah. two old men on the roof, and then you'd see the ball come up. Yeah, yeah, and that it kind of it joins Over those, it connects those two spaces. Yeah. So like, so simple in a way. So like, yeah. so like when on paper it seems so simple, but I think it's actually something that like so many films, especially, uh, I don't know, I want to say like modern films, like you know, you often see in like a Hollywood film, they take they pay no attention to that, and you actually lose this sense of space and this sense of a real location. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does yeah. a really good job of making it feel like a cohesive. And there's an, there's another bit where it's the two guys sat on the roof and then in the next sequence, you can see them on their roof in the background of that sequence yeah, just true. to make it feel like one world. cohesive world. Yeah. yeah, I also really liked from that film the, the, the kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, like the trope of car windscreen as the kind of viewing as the kind of cinema mm. and camera so there was that scene where they'd sit at the, at the border of the, or the checkpoint um, and there was loads of military and they were you know abusing people trying to get through the gate and checking passports and making people line up and you kind of and you kind of saw that all through the view of the kind of the spectator but it's also the main character watching it all take place through their windscreen it reminds me of a scene in the bad sleep well um by uh, kira kurosawa where there's that kind of similar similar idea of using the screen um, reflected by the, the windscreen, which is interesting. Mm. Kurosawa is definitely a master of that as well. Mm. That, that space, creation of space. Yeah. But as Nathan said, I think like the start, people, because of the breadth of his work, people often understate the influence that David Lynch has. And in, in that Inland Empire, we saw plenty of that. I mean, no one holds a candle to him when it comes to sort of generating that sense of dread that you get from an ordinary domestic scene, you know, a kitchen, a corridor. And he had these, in Inland Empire, he had these amazing shots of like liminal spaces. I know that's a term you like, Callum. 
uh, you know, underground car parks or um, hotel, uh, motel rooms, which using the digital video were was really, well, yeah. Yeah. astounding. Like a sickening eeriness. It's something like, it is, it is like liminal in the truest sense. There's yeah. something so just unsettling. Well, now we're on the topic of liminal cinematography, I have to mention one of my underdog films of the season, which hasn't been mentioned yet. Anyone know what I'm thinking of? Sounds like it's a big drop, but I don't know. A big mic drop moment. No one knows what uh, I'm thinking of. Liminal spaces. Liminal spaces. Um, no. Remainder? Oh, Luck. okay, Luck yeah. I mean, I actually think for cinematography, and particularly when we're considering things like um, costume and sets, there was something so interesting about the way the film was following this guy who basically has loads of money and he, he kind of tries to reenact these dreams and fragments of memory that he has. And he's constructing, he buys this whole mansion and he, has, he pays actors to come and wear those um, like weird mm. bank robber masks and, and cook their bacon to smell exactly as he remembered it and he like recreates these scenes and some of them feel so kind of like it's this combination of real and, and unreal and you're unsure kind of what what specifically he's trying to achieve and there's a sense of like a fleeting dream that he's trying to latch onto something that's quite quite inexplicable and he's, he's kind of retracing his steps and I, I really like that film um, from a, from a, in terms of cinematography as well. Yeah, um, I thought although it had its issues, I really liked how it, it was almost fourth wall breaking or kind of like in a sense deconstructing cinema, in the sense that it was they were trying to recreate these perfect scenes within the film. Yeah, he was almost like a tyrannical director yeah. trying to create his perfect world, but obviously having all these. And again, yeah, another was... debut actually, a debut feature film by. I think someone who was an artist, his name was Omer Fast. Um, and this was, you know, I think he's got a sort of long history of doing installations and stuff like that. This was his first feature film. Let's hope we see some more from him. Nice. Uh, that probably brings us to the close of uh, our third, our penultimate uh, category. So without further ado, I suppose it's um roll into our last but certainly not least category a topic that uh, is both controversial and uh held very close to our hearts and that is of course best music now again we should caveat this by saying we had a bit of back and forth on whether this should include um, only original scores so music composed for the film or whether we'd also include soundtracks which surprisingly actually there's quite a few of in this uh, this season mm. where we're kind of you know using famous tracks or records and integrating those into the soundtrack um, and of course all of our personal highlights or as many of them as we could find we have amalgamated into a playlist which you can find on Spotify and that is Reads on Record so yeah please do go and check that out as well uh, who wants to present this award um, for best music who knows what it was I forgot what it was so I think that can go ahead right, well, well. <laughs> so the winner for best music is Woman in Dunes isn't it Woman in the Dunes yeah, yeah. Right. So, sorry I just wrote it so yeah. the winner for the category or was it woman off the jeans woman in the jeans woman in the jeans is it the woman in the jeans no it's woman in the jeans right I've got it here right 
So, the winner for... Sorry. So we have a winner for the category of best music, and that winner is Woman in the Dunes. And what a soundtrack it was. Um, again, I believe this is a totally original uh, original score for the film. Um, for me, the first thing that's, that uh, stuck out was this kind of combination of um, acoustic uh, orchestral instruments. I think there's these kind of strings, which obviously you'd expect in a kind of thrillery, tense film. Um, that you see everywhere nowadays in modern horror, this like sounds. Um, so that was one part. Then you had some synths and some other kind of weird electronic music going on. So I think there were like delay effects and echoes, which created this sense of repetition and like almost uh, Steve Reichy minimalist kind of like and these kind of delaying looping sounds, which were kind of going on in the background. So almost glitchy. And then last but not least, they had there was. And I don't know because I'm not an expert in sort of traditional Japanese music, but the percussion felt very kind of like um, what you'd expect maybe in like a um, a Kurosawa or like a what do you call it, um, uh, Jikai Genki or those kind of like mm. traditional um, samurai films or period pieces. Mm. Mm. And that kind of trilogy I thought worked really well together. Um, yeah. So that that was my initial thoughts on that. But. Anyone else like the soundtrack? Yeah, definitely. Like ambient horror with that, yeah, with a with a very Japanese sounding aesthetic. So. I thought the um, it was very distinctively horror at the start when he's um, when he's walking through the sand dunes uh, and you can just hear the quite high pitched string. Very it sounds a lot like um, a lot of string instruments, but I think it's uh, being done using a synth uh, and it's very haunting and it and it creates this anticipation you know something bad is going to happen uh, which it ultimately does when he ends up in the pit um, but I thought that was done very well and then more just on sound design uh, I think you were mentioning this earlier Nathan um, with the sound the sound design in terms of the, the sound design worked so well with the cinematography in the getting that feeling that it's really gritty with the sand on the skin yeah. and just making the viewer feel the spectator feel really uncomfortable um and something very visceral about that uh yeah i thought it was really good really good sound unfortunately i don't think it's available on spotify so actually although i did plug roots on record earlier that is <laughs> One of the few um, soundtracks which we haven't been able to source, but, but hold tight, we might maybe add a link in the description if there's a YouTube version or okay, something floating the, around the, on the internet. Yeah, or of course, the better option, watch the damn film. And just write it. Also quite hard to... No, it's on YouTube, actually. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, record the sound from there. Yeah. Just rip it straight from the YouTube. Now, if we're talking about music... You know, there's only one film that I oh, wanted yeah, to talk yeah. about, really. <laughs> and although it was controversial at the time because there was a debate about whether this counts as a feature film or not, although mm. I would say it's inarguable that as a concert film it is. The well, film I mean, I'm that's talking exactly about what the is about, Amazing Grace with Aretha Franklin. And if we're here for the music, I mean, I think that's where the conversation stops. I mean, it was an amazing experience to watch. Um, basically Aretha Franklin goes back to basics unplugged she's in a 
um, downtown Baptist church, singing with a choir, um, with the usual congregation. And I felt it was an experience watching it that I felt could have just, I could have sat there and watched it go on and on and on. And we spent quite a lot of time debating this. And if you look back at the review, you can see different opinions about this film reflected in the scores. But I would uh, basically follow up with, um, I think it was Marvin Gaye's comment about this film. It was Aretha Franklin's singular masterpiece. I mean, look... I think I think there's a I think there's a valid discussion to be had about yeah oh, no one's saying it's not a film but well Nathan took a more radical position that it's not a film at all and I think to talk about it in the same way you would talk about for example I don't know any of the other possible Women about, in the Dunes Women in the Dunes or the um, winner. Yeah, it's, it's just a whole different ballpark. And so I'm totally happy to accept that the, the, her performance is incredible. I mean, actually, controversially, the the, the, the eponymous track, uh, Amazing Grace, I didn't like that much. I thought there were some better songs. It was a bit like she dragged, she did the thing where you like sing Amay. And then it was like everyone clapped and there was a long pause and like it just took ages. And by that, I think that song came Wait, about what an did hour she do? She did like that thing where you kind of, she just did like, she, like, she she like, had like the crowd running like for like 20 minutes. Like, Amazing. Yeah, that, that's called gospel music. I think you need to, uh, yeah, but it, it <laughs> goes, give it you goes a bit like, of an education. Amazing grace. But like, she just went off the, off the beat and just went mad on an album. There was no timing. Was just, anyway, I'm not going to criticize her singing because obviously it's brilliant. It's fantastic. Everyone's vibing. It's a good crowd. But like, it's not a, it doesn't feel like, I think what we talked about and what the crux of the discussion was, how much, how much are we crediting the performance versus the filming of the performance? And those are two separate things. Mm. So I would give her performance in that an eight and a half, nine out of 10. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> eight and a half. <laughs> why, why, why not nine? Well, because of the reason I've said, but anyway. <laughs> The, the person who filmed it like the actual filming like I feel like that's what we should be judging it on we can't just say well it's Aretha Franklin it's amazing the film's a 10 that's so not fair because we should be but judging I, the I'm film not, on its merits I'm, I'm not making the case that this film is the best film of this season I'm talking I know, about, I know, I know. I'm just talking about it as a musical experience in the category of but, best music yeah. and I would say it is you know it's there to be um, considered yeah, yeah I think yeah, it absolutely. deserves a mention I, oh, absolutely! I, I completely agree. I yeah, think I it agree. It's definitely not a soundtrack, the... is it? Let's put it that way. It's not a right. soundtrack. It's not a soundtrack. No. And also, it was recorded, right? If there's, if there's some, we have some facts about the actual album itself. Did it do really well? Did it sell? Was it? Yeah, yeah. She recorded I mean, this was her like live gospel, and it was yeah. like greatest greatest selling gospel album of all time. I think. And that's the recording that you're hearing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there you go. Best, best best gospel ever I've ever heard maybe best soundtrack best music for a film maybe not but yeah big up Aretha any yeah. other soundtracks go off queen as, they, as the kids any say. other soundtracks anyone wants to nominate I mean I mean we talked a little bit about sound in the beginning with best film in an empire that kind of textbook David Lynch signature industrial noisecape yeah. weird sounds radiators being hit with spoons <laughs> 
climbing boards being knocked over and wind like what more could you what more could you ask for um from a from a, from a film by David Lynch than that the cathartic what? Nina Simone finale yeah, yeah. I mean, and that is quite interesting for a David uh, Lynch feature film I mean he did much the same with um, Blue Velvet where he brought in um, old records for um, the soundtrack but not so much in Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive no that's true no that was a great soundtrack whereas here yeah I mean we've got Nina Simone we've got the locomotion um, Beck yeah trash I never liked that, but that's that's not here. Uh, interestingly, this season in particular. So I, I would say that last season I had more of a tough job with the origin with the original score category, and I don't want to go too much back into the archives. But it felt like in this season there are a lot more copy and paste jobs. So Chunking Express also had Cal- that classic California Dreaming bit. Nina Simone, obviously, in Inland Empire. There was an, was there another one as well? Uh, maybe it's just Amazing Grace. I'm thinking of where they're kind of using non-original music. But I think in the last season there were more kind of big soundtracks where I was like, oh wow, we had um, what's his name, the guy who did Crimes of the Future and a couple of other ones. Mm. He kept appearing, mm. um, and I think that's an interesting distinction to make and something again that I think we we did mention previously that the difference between a, a score that's made specifically for a film versus one that's used. And, and certainly, and I think there's there's crossover as well, you know, mm. because it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, if they're being selected and, and it's the kind of uh, position that they're, you know, the context in which they're used, yeah, is is so significant. And hearing Nina Simone's cinema at the end of uh, Inland Empire, I'd heard that that song, you know, numerous times before, but it put it in a completely different light to me. Yeah, it's funny because it almost got ruined by I think it was an iPhone or an Apple, an iPod advert in the <laughs> in the. <laughs> in the 2010s David Lynch just running in to clutch it but when when it came on and I remember that now but at the time watching the film I'm not thinking of that I'm I'm purely immersed in the in the Lynch world so yeah maybe we could do that for some of the other like advert like songs that have been done to death with adverts yeah what's that one in the Lloyd's TSB the one that they always use it's like a I don't know what it's called I don't know the name of the song I just know it's the Lloyd's TSB yeah uh I can't remember it. We'll have to get it up. We'll have to move on. Yeah. Move well, on. <laughs> but I, I mean, think there have been some um, other um, great pieces of soundtrack and scoring. Uh, so the theme from Long Good Friday springs to mind. I mean, that's classic. Anybody who's seen that film back in the day, as soon as that 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 soundtrack comes on the radio, they recognise it. That's all announcing um, Harold Shand or Bob Hoskins' presence. Mm-hmm. Musical. Yep. We didn't talk about the only. Well, I mean, obviously, other than Aretha Franklin, it's not really a musical. But of course, we had Neptune Frost, which I have to say was a, a resounding disappointment for me. Um, mm. But I thought there was definitely had some redeeming factors in it. I mean, we talked about the. We, we didn't talk. I think in the review we talked about the costume and the creativity of it on a low budget, but the music actually also I thought was quite good. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really like the exuberance of this sort of. Afro-futurist aesthetic. I was really impressed by that. And as you said, I think it was a low-budget film shot in quite challenging circumstances, filmed in Rwanda at the time. So It was very ambitious in what it tried to do. And I think it did put it off in many ways. 
I think it. I think it had some glimpses. There were some glimpses of something really great there, but for me, it just felt too incoherent for me to actually care about what was going on on screen. What about music specifically? Oh, sorry. sorry. We're on the best oh. music category. Sorry. Because um, for me, like, there were some good I, kind of vibe. There were a couple of good tracks. I don't, I don't really particularly remember the soundtrack, to be honest. The beginning, the opening soundtrack, because obviously he's working in some kind of coltan sort of like technology mm. harvesting uh, mineral mine. Mm. And that really reminded me of um, not only the classic sort of Lame is when he's a prisoner two four six oh one put look down and he's pulling the ropes of the ship. Oh, yeah. But also of course from last season where you have that kind of industrial musical um uh what do you call that song? Uh, yeah, Bjork. What's the film called? I was thinking to the uh, waves, but all the waves but that's Last Contrea. Yeah. Um The Woman in the Oh, Dancer in the Dark. Dancer oh, in the Dark. Well, oh, I mean a pretty well, random title to yeah. be fair. But yeah. Well, I mean, it reminded me of that in a way because like, it was like that they were mining and then all of a sudden they started mining in time and then there was a drama over the top of it. Yeah, um, yeah, that Bjork film, Dancer in the Dark. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah, really, really had a hint of that <laughs> and lame ears. And again, I'm not normally uh, uh, those kind of films slash musicals can be sort of shaky ground. I think they can quite quickly. Become... It's like when it's like everything's going fine and then it suddenly switches to that kind of musical number. Yeah, kind of like um, Doctor Who the other day actually. But then, yeah, they're, yeah, like yeah, exactly. That's a classic example of how not to do it. So, oh, round the musical into it, everyone starts singing. The goblins. Yeah. Um, Did you watch it? You didn't watch any Doctor Who Christmas special. Is this for the podcast? Or is it the... <laughs> <laughs> seems... well, I think we've sort okay. of drifted off a bit. Um, don't worry. But yeah, oh, wait. So, should we wrap up? Then is there any yeah. other kind of honourable mentions for the best I, 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 music? I'd like category? to see more Afrofuturist films. Yeah, I think the aesthetic's so cool, but like. Yeah. No one's making them. And games. TV mm. shows. Yeah. Well, I, as you said, Nathan, what I liked about Neptune uh, Frost was that ambition and trying to do things in quite a radical way, which even though, uh, let's take... Um... Dance from the Dark. <laughs> Chicken Run. Uh, no. Toy Story? No, oh, it's a Marvel film. Doctor Who. Oh. oh, you're talking about Black Panther. Yeah, so if we look at a film like Black Panther, although that was considered to be um, ambitious, it was still very much within the constraints of the Hollywood Marvel system. Yeah. Whereas Neptune Frost, they were really, I think, trying to do something very different. Amen. Yeah. No, I think that's that's why I said disappointing at the beginning because I was like, I saw the trailer, I read it, and I was like, oh, Afro Future, no, 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 we don't normally get this, it'd be fun, musical, cool looking costumes. And then I got there and it was like, it was like I said, like being in a year six play. I, oh, I'm a robot and I've got a polystyrene cup stuck on my head. Oh, cat, I think that's a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Very harsh. <laughs> no, uh, actually, I my, my issue with it is it was not even that. I, I, I didn't really mind some of the low budget costume additions. I, for that, like, you know, I thought the CGI was fine and the costumes for the most part looked good, in my opinion. I thought the like, actual aesthetics and again, some of the, you could see the sort of. The, the creases in the green screens in some places really? but um, uh, for me it was more just the, the narrative I just could literally I could not follow it I just, I just felt I felt like I was falling asleep you need to watch it again then really? well I didn't think it was that complex the narrative no I just couldn't get on board with it I just was I was I felt like I was I, yeah I don't know yeah maybe I need to watch it again sometimes you know sometimes a second viewing can open 
Yeah. I mean, again, I think yeah. we're, we're talking about a film that's possibly free on Amazon Prime Video. So yeah. if any of our listeners are, takes their fancy, please do check it out. If only for the kind of interesting, uh, slightly off the wall uh, approach to the musical sci-fi uh, genre. Mm. Um, it's better to try and fail than not try at all. Sometimes, yeah. In the case of not that it failed, but I guess you know. Yeah. It's good to see something different. Yeah. Well, and try and try and try and do something different. Well, thank you for uh, joining us uh, today on this uh, uh, very uh, warm winter evening to to discuss uh, what's been, as I said earlier, a very successful season. Um, we'll be starting up, I think, very soon in the new year with a pick uh, from myself. Um, and yeah, this is this is a year of, of reason yeah. film. So yeah, thank you to all of those people that have been tuning in on our Substack, on Twitter, re- following us on Spotify, or just listening to these podcasts. Thank you very much. A happy new, new year. year. Yeah, happy new year for me. Thank you. There's no simple answer Goodbye, to that question. transition um <laughs> so the next category uh for reason film season two awards. sorry can I, can I just yeah. interrupt we could call this the 